Hello, friends. You're listening to a special episode of Slow Agency, where we're going to be talking about writing as it relates to trauma. We recorded this episode just a few weeks before the second anniversary of the Beirut blast on August 4th. The people of Lebanon are still coming to terms with what happened. We had the opportunity to meet with a few of them and talk about how they're using writing in their community to process August 4th. Welcome to Slow Agency. This podcast offers a space for writing center and writing studies people to slow down, think, dialogue, and reflect on issues affecting their professional lives. I'm Esther Namubiru. I'm Wajali. And I'm Anna Habib. We are honored to steward this podcast. To learn more about Slow Agency, visit Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders, a blog of WLN, a journal of writing center scholarship. August 4th, 2020, will be a day to remember in Beirut, Lebanon. The city's main port exploded in what has been described as the largest non-nuclear explosion in the world. Think 300 tons of high explosives. 218 people died. 77,000 apartments were reduced to rubble. 7,000 people were injured. How could this happen? Why would it happen? We invited our guests Paula Haber, Serene Jafar, Hala Daouk, and Anita Muchoyan. They're the team of Write to Remember, August 4th, a writing initiative that helps the people of Beirut come to terms with what happened. In this conversation, they share why this project means so much to them, how they put it together, and what they've learned All of them are lecturers and professors of writing and language at Lebanese American University and Hagazian University. All of them in some way have contributed to writing center work or are currently doing writing center research. Also, we're joined by two additional guests, Aya, who is with us now, and Rev, whose voice will be represented later in this conversation. So they are representing other participants from the project. Thank you, Paula. And thank you all for being here. It's really an honor to have you. When Esther, Weja, and I heard about the Right to Remember August 4th project, we were actually on a Middle East North African Writing Center Association panel, and Paula was there. And you mentioned this project, and we were really, really touched by it, especially I was really touched by it. I'm a Lebanese expat, born in Lebanon during the war, grew up in Cyprus, very familiar story for many. And August 4th was just terrifying in a different way for expats, you know, sitting overseas, watching what was happening, knowing family and friends were all in in the danger. And it felt really paralyzing and horrible. And so just when I heard about the project, Paula, during that MENA session, I just felt it had to be something that our community on the blog and the podcast were aware of. And I think it's a project that could be such an important model for so many communities who are working on community healing. So thank you so much for being here and for helping us learn about the project and also helping us honor the memory of the event and the people who were lost and the homes that were lost during that time. 
we hope that everybody in your family and circle and your homes are finding some sort of healing path in the grief. We know about August 4th and we briefly introduced it, but if you, Paula and Anita, just start us off with maybe describing a little bit about the event, maybe where you were, if that's something that feels comfortable, but then how that became the impetus for this project. August 4th is very personal because I live in the area that was immediately impacted by the blast. So it was quite difficult to uh, deal with the after effects of such a blast that was unexpected. We were going about our day. I had made a cup of coffee and I was about to delve into reading a book and then it happened. So for me, it's extremely personal and it has been very difficult to, I won't say move past it because I don't think there's such a thing, but just to process it, to uh, come to terms with the fact that the home that I grew up in and feel so comfortable in was literally shattered into pieces in front of my eyes. I remember just repeating the words, the house is gone, the house is gone. So the impact was unreal for some of the members in the communities. Maybe they didn't lose their homes, but it literally impacted everyone. To sort of link that to how we started Right to Remember August 4th. So basically, right after the blast, people all over Lebanon started writing a number of posts all over social media, on Instagram and then Facebook. Because people, including myself, didn't know what to do with the thoughts and the feelings. It was just like, very confusing. So the only place we felt like could have a voice was social media. And that's what we used. And then we were approached by the US embassy in Lebanon a couple of months later. And we were told that we could receive a grant if we were to come up with a project that would encourage writing or encourage writing in English. We had a meeting, the four of us, and we were thinking what would be a project that is much needed in our community today. And that's where Paula, I mentioned, let's do something like these posts need to go somewhere. It can't be that they're in the history of, of someone's newsfeed and that's where they end up. We needed to do something to archive them to sort of remember what had happened because in the country we reside in, such events are often overlooked and forgotten. Usually there's no accountability for such acts and there's no justice that is sought by people in power. And you feel like the community as a whole has adopted this collective amnesia. We didn't want this to just be another big traumatic event that hits Lebanon and it just disappears or is not remembered. The Lebanese sometimes feel like they are resilient and above and beyond everything, but that's not really how it feels when you're witnessing and experiencing these. So when you feel like no one's really doing something about it, you feel like an opportunity is granted for you. And that's where we were coming from with this initiative. Also, because we're all lecturers at the university, we felt like an age group that we are very comfortable working with are the youth. The youth were extremely confused with what had happened. They didn't have any spaces to express themselves. They didn't know who to go to, in a sense, and not all of them could afford therapy. So we felt like, okay, this would be this would be an initiative that would also help them. And we didn't claim we were doing therapy, but what we actually do in reality as writing instructors, 
we want to do the same in this outreach project. And this was encouraged by the embassy when we proposed for it. They didn't want it to be competitive, but more community-related, which is our target. We recruited workshop leaders in different types of backgrounds to help us as well. Like the second uh, speaker, if I'm not mistaken, was a drama therapist. So she helped them a lot in terms of dealing with trauma through writing. And I think it's really interesting that you're, you didn't want to claim the writing to heal and landed on this idea of writing to remember. But I'm wondering, Hala and Sirim, could you describe a little bit about how you got involved? And then also, what is the project itself? How did it operate? How it was organized? Hala, do you want to start? And then Sirim can pick up. Yes, after our meeting with the U.S. Embassy, we started putting down a few ideas of how we can recruit, who is it that we are looking for. We wanted participants who were directly and indirectly impacted by the blast because, um, you know, not all people are comfortable, you know, talking about, about this. We were all angry. I know my colleagues or I know we still are. For these young people as well, there was a lot of anger inside, a lot of sadness. So we had started around the first anniversary. We started looking for participants. And as Anita said, there were a lot of pieces scattered on social media. One of the posts that got us started was by a young 15-year-old girl who wrote about her friend's mother who had passed away while they were at her friend's uh, house. And we we started uh, recruiting um, participants. And little by little, we started figuring out the, the criteria. Serene uh, can tell you more about age group and where we went and, and, and so on. Yes, so recruiting participants uh, was one of the challenges that we initially faced because we had to sort of decide on the age group. We agreed that we definitely wanted university students to be a part of it. But then we also saw that many high school students were writing about this, and we also didn't want to leave them out. So we chose the participants to be between 15 to 16 to 2021. We went about contacting schools and universities that were directly impacted by the BLAST initially. We didn't always get a response which posed somewhat of a hindrance because we wanted to spread the word. This is when we resorted to social media. And we, in fact, recruited many of our participants through social media. Did the students or youth all come to a specific place and then you invited a guest and then they led them through a workshop? Is that how it was? So the way that we organized the workshops was we had a sequence. We tried to diversify the genres. And we started out with a workshop that focused on reflective writing, just to allow participants to express their thoughts. We then moved to uh, trauma writing through trauma therapy. Um, we also focused on poetry. We had a workshop geared towards that. We had a specific workshop on using sensory details to sort of express what they wanted to express. Our in-person workshop it was our only in-person workshop because most of our workshops were held over Zoom. But our in-person workshop focused on telling a story. 
And so the speaker gave them exercises that allowed them to tell their story. And our final workshop concluded with memoir writing. So we felt like the progression of the workshop seemed natural because ending with memoir writing in a sense is a way for them to tell their story. Anita, I think you wanted to add also something. Yeah, uh, I was saying writing center tutors, they were coming up with pieces inspired by some of the activities they were exposed to through these various workshops. And then we were also providing them with writing support in between these sessions. So that also helped them gain more confidence in their writing because some of them had stories to tell, but maybe at first told us we're not sure how to express ourselves, or maybe some of them are great writers, but they lack the confidence. So we tried to provide those who reached out with that support as well. And I think that also worked out really great um, with the needs, if you want, of the participants. Thank you. I wanted to just clarify one thing. Did we say, did you say drama therapist or trauma therapist? Drama. D-R-A-M-A. Yes. Got it. Okay. Also, we're joined by two additional guests, Aya who is with us now, and Rev, whose voice will be representative later in this conversation. Paula, could you briefly introduce Aya and Rev to us? Yes, Aya Tahir is one of our participants whom we recruited for the project. She's a psychology major from Hegazian University. And Rev Amanuddin is an Lebanese-American university student who was also recruited based on her writing interests. She was a winner uh, in the past year of the creative writing competition. So we invited her and she was interested because she felt she was affected as well. So they are representing other participants from the project. Aya, as one of the participants, could you tell us more about your experience and also what attracted you to participate in the first place? Yes, so being a participant in the Right to Remember has really helped me kind of process the trauma of the blast because when you get to write about something, you get to relive it and this constant exposure to this trauma, it puts this chaotic experience into order. And also, like Serene said, we did a lot of our workshops on Zoom because the blast was during COVID times. So it was this collective trauma, but everyone was kind of living it uh, on their own. So this community really helped bring this uh, other writing community together. And we were able to share our trauma and our collective memory and know that we're not alone in this and that we relate to each other. Uh, as you just reminded us that actually this was happening during COVID. Um, the blast actually happened on the first day the country opened and lifted lockdowns. So it was the first day going back into Lebanon, like our day to day, and then the blast occurred. And then after that, there were lockdowns, but people were on the streets, we were cleaning. We kind of didn't know how to juggle between we're there as a community, we're living this together, we want to rebuild, we want to heal but also like we're isolated. So the right to remember August for community really had bring us together in a safe way and in a safe space as well. I would just like to add, even though a number of sessions were on Zoom, 
our first open mic was in person and that was a change to all of us. The sense of community that was built happened virtually for a while. And then we met face to face in one of the affected places close to the blast. And we chose a location that was damaged. It was a bookshop slash coffee place where the youth gathered. We wanted to benefit those places and we wanted the youth to feel that this place is coming back to life. And this is where they shared their pieces. So that was open mic one and it was close to Christmas time. It was very emotional to say the least. We all like exchanged feelings, got to know one another. We started putting those names to faces and but we at the same time felt like we've known each other for a long time. Even though we didn't meet until we, we had the chance in the open mic sessions. And now we're looking forward to the closing ceremony, which is going to be in person as well. So, yeah. Yes, um, Rav Amanuddin's, um, uh, because she couldn't be with us, she had told us that it, it was a very rare and unique chance for many of these young participants to express themselves in a very peaceful, homey environment. And uh, not many of us had encountered such an opportunity to write, especially about such a traumatic event. So they were happy when the project started. They started telling their friends, whether they were writers or non-writers, spreading the word among their own community and their friends joined along the way. So we started building that small community, quote unquote, as the project that was going. And she also commented a lot on the idea that it created for them a circle of friends that you know, they didn't have before. So we had started with just 10 participants in our first phase, and then we increased the number to 70. But then as the workshops were moving along, we remained with a faithful, committed group of 30 participants at the end. And those are the, the ones that, you know, have been producing these pieces that are posted on our the website. So they enjoyed that that environment, receiving judgment-free feedback from us, basically as organizers, but also from the workshop leaders who basically gave them these tips and tools. And have, among others, read her work, I believe, in both open mic events so far, and they enjoy it. They really, really enjoy such occasions. Yeah, so Paula. An observation as a writing teacher, even though the, the topic began as a sad one, um, I mean, the level of motivation is very high compared to an actual classroom because there are no grades here or a kind of evaluation that's coming up in the end, but they were highly motivated on their own to submit, to meet deadlines even though they are not going to be graded. I mean, that's something that we've all observed. For many of us, we usually teach writing in specific settings, in specific circumstances, often under the umbrella of academia. And this is the first time where we, even though we ourselves weren't delivering the workshops, but we were planning them and we were doing something beyond the classroom. Um, what this project has shown us is that there's a need 
for such initiatives. Take a look at the participants and their backgrounds. They come from different fields, from psychology, medicine, some are studying journalism, but very few of them are actually interested in pursuing right per se as a career or going into that. Yet we found that they were very much interested in participating in the project itself. So what it has shown us ultimately is that post the blast, this is something that everyone needs and everyone needed. As editors of the blog lately, we've been talking about this idea of writing in crisis and writing as a tool for post-traumatic growth. We've had conversations with colleagues in different parts of the world who have been in various crises. Um, we spoke with a guest from Colombia and other guests from different countries in Africa. And it's not surprising, we are living in a time of crisis. But this was a really a, a, a extreme tragedy. You had this project that gave you, obviously, firsthand experience with writing as a tool for post-traumatic growth. And we're wondering, what did you learn about post-traumatic growth and the way writing helps with that? And then how can we take that lesson into our spaces as writing and center administrators and writing teachers? Anita? So I think one thing that this whole initiative has proven is the, the collective impact writing can have. Because we teach writing and we know that people journal their emotions and feelings, but when it's right after such a traumatic event, just getting together and doing that together has shown us the positive impact it could have because we were just discussing this last week because of the second anniversary is approaching. We just couldn't help but compare where we all were last August 3rd when we started this project. And as we're wrapping up on August 1st, where we are both as organizers and as participants. The first workshop, everyone was breaking down in tears. We could barely finish our sentences. We felt frustrated. As Hala rightfully said, there was a lot of anger. And in December, when we had our first open mic, a lot of emotions, people were, participants were hugging each other. I remember one participant wanted to share her piece, but broke down several times. And then some of her, of her fellow participants reached out and they hugged. But then if we track it, if we trace it by workshop five, we felt like, hey, something's, you know, something's happening here. There's a collective I don't want to use the word healing because I believe that's a very big word to use, but there's a feeling that is transforming from complete chaos and hopelessness to at least maybe expression that sort of made them feel like, hey, our feelings are validated. We matter. Um, and so the shared pain, the coming together, crying together, writing together, I mean, with all humbleness, we confirmed the transformative impact it has had at least through our project on these participants. And they tell us in our WhatsApp group, you cannot imagine what this, what this project has meant to us. Thank you for creating such a space. We feel validated. We finally have a community. And I just wanted to say on a personal level as well, this was a healing process for me as an organizer because looking back at August 4th, I can see a speck of something else other than the tragedy of losing a home and, and watching people bury their loved ones, I feel like we created something so 
good, so positive, so impactful. And the fact that we're sharing that through our website, people can read what these participants have expressed. I think that that's very powerful and it has had a healing effect on me as well. Ayad? Yes, sure. Uh, as a participant of I've Come a Long Way, and we were talking about post-traumatic growth and writing. So post-traumatic starts off with something as big as the Bay Blast because your assumptions shatters. It's something that's so big. There's no meaning to it. You can't process it. And like Anita said at the beginning, we weren't processing it. We were breaking down. It was so chaotic. But then with time and with writing about it and having those workshops, it was very helpful and believing it in the workshops. This constant exposure to our memories helped process it. So there was this bit of meaning making and meaning making really helps in transforming post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth. So I definitely think that yeah, writing is definitely a tool to growth after trauma. I really appreciate what, what you said. I can tell you're a psychology major. <laughs> the transformative power of, of writing to transform PTSD, post-traumatic stress, to post-traumatic growth. One of the things you said also resonated with me. It's a theorist, Maurice Blanchot, wrote a book called L'Écriture du Désastre, The Writing of the Disaster, in which he talks about the inability for language to capture disaster like language doesn't really capture the absolute terror of the event that's his whole theory it's an interesting sort of paradox because no matter how many words we try to use we cannot recapture the absolute atrocity yet we're still relying on language as our way for healing there are, you know, indigenous cultures that if something happens that causes grief, they all come together as a community and dance, actually move the tragedy through the body. Other communities chant. And I think writing is just as embodied. It's a way of moving that pain through the body, both cognitively and physically in this embodied way. And so I just... I find your project to just so beautifully situated in all of these like theoretical ways too. Anita, did you want to add anything? Yeah, when you said grief and when you said theory. So a group of our participants are also creating a song with an American to be played during the closing ceremony. They were planning to come up with the lyrics for that song. We sort of had an aha moment where we were like, wait a minute, the five stages of grief are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And if we were to think about our project, our year-long project, we felt like those five concepts have echoed through our project because we started with a lot of us were in denial, a lot of us angry, a lot of us were depressed, but then we've gotten somewhere closer to acceptance. So I just wanted to mention that we also felt that was validated uh, through this project. And that's so beautiful. The thing is, with those five stages of grief, it's not like this linear path, because there will always be the anger and denial and the other ones. But the beautiful thing is that acceptance has entered the stage, you know, so they'll always mix and coexist. But acceptance is now part of the conversation in ways that maybe as as you described two years ago and a year ago, it wasn't. And at the same time, it's like, we'll never accept what happened, but at least we are still here and we have 
found ways to kind of process it. What I experienced when the writing of lyrics was taking place, it was a reflection of how bonded they have become, even though some of the writers were not going to sing the song. They offered their ideas in terms of lyrics, and the others decided who's going to do the chorus, who's going to play the piano and play the guitar. So it turned out that they developed some group dynamics uh, that were instilled in them because of the cause. They want this to be a success. So everyone wrote for the songs, and they came up with two beautiful songs in terms of lyrics are amazing, I mean, and very touching. Paula and Anita, thanks for mentioning the song. It's one of my favorite aspects about this project. And earlier, I requested your permission to be able to share snippets of the song with our listeners. So let's go ahead. Now is as good a perfect now is a perfect opportunity as any to let our listeners uh, just hear a few uh, lines of the music. How are we breathing for the clouds turn gray? sky is black, but it's still starry. At a loss for words, there's nothing left to say. Just a cover-up, fumes and fury. are two songs that were created out of a collaboration between the participants of the Right to Remember project and the American band Hot Buttered Rum. So again, thank you so much to the Right to Remember colleagues we're speaking to right now who gave us some permission to share a few snippets of those songs with you if you want to hear the entire uh, list of songs, you can visit their website, which we shall be sharing with you at the end of this episode. So stick around. Weija, I believe you have a question. 
What advice would you give for someone who wanted to do something like Right to Remember? Initially, when we had first planned the project over one year and we started the implementation, it was a bit overwhelming. But what we also learned is that tools are available. So, for instance, having sessions over Zoom might be a hindrance in some cases, but it also facilitated our lives in other cases. So it is doable. We also planned it in a way where we gave ourselves time to review the submissions before posting them. So I think it all goes down to how you plan it, giving enough time for the different aspects and the different phases of the project. That's not to say that it wasn't overwhelming at some points. And I think our biggest challenge is that we live in a country that is on the verge of an economic collapse. And this has been going on for the past three years. We faced problems when it came to providing transportation for students who wanted to attend in-person events, but could not. We tried to provide mobile data bundles for students who were unable to attend workshops because of power cuts. And I think what, what we can say is that it is doable, even though at some points it felt overwhelming. And we are very happy have reached where we have reached. So the project is coming to an end. We just had our last workshop this Saturday. The total was six workshops from the beginning till July 16th. The closing ceremony for this project is August 1st at the American Embassy. They graciously offered to host the closing ceremony there. So we aimed at doing it prior to August 4 because you know, leave that day clear so that people focus on their own emotions with that incident. So our closing ceremony is August 1. Some of our participants will be also sharing their own experience as well. The two songs that were prepared will be also shared with the audience. But I have to say, I mean, we all admit that a lot of beautiful things came out of this project. The first thing is this community we have created. I think it's one of the most important things that came out of it. We also have a website that will remain online for another year with the participants' submissions, a glimpse of each one of the workshops as well, the songs with their own lyrics. I don't know if we can mention it yet, but we also may have like a, a publishable collection of their work coming out next year, hopefully. So yeah, a lot of beautiful things have come out of this uh, this project and we couldn't be more proud of it. A publishing house showed interest in having this put together like an anthology of their work to be shared with Lebanese communities, not only in Lebanon, but maybe abroad to create awareness. And we have more ideas as we discussed it with the publisher, maybe participants presenting in in schools that uh, might be interested in having this book read, they can share their experiences as well. And some others have contributed artistically. So you can see that in the website as well. They express themselves both in drawing and in writing. So that would be another uh, avenue. But what I can conclude with, if I may, it has exceeded our expectations. We didn't know it was going to get here. Every time we get a surprise, do you want 
your participants to collaborate with a band in the U.S. and for them to write a, the lyrics of songs. And the ambassador invited them to cultural events in their house and the embassy to speak to other audiences. Another time we were invited to the public library and we met the Minister of Culture. So we felt more exposure than we had anticipated, actually. So now we see more, more responsibility and the participants are always asking us, please don't stop. Don't let this end. I mean, and it's hurting us, but we're, we're going to try to take it to another level. If I may just add, we want to be heard. That was the point of this whole project. We want the pieces that the participants invested in over the past year, pouring their hearts and souls into documenting and writing about this exceptionally traumatic experience. We want people to read what they had to say, and we want them to also contribute to the collective memory that we're trying to create so that no one can have the power to just erase it. We don't want August 4th to end up just another piece of news that people were highly interested in for three, four, five days. We want to leave an impact through this project. Cedian, do you want to add something to that? Yes, what I wanted to say is we've noticed how the project has evolved and how everything that we're doing has reflected the evolution of the project began by focusing on allowing them to express what they were feeling at that moment in time in relation to the blast. Today, two years later, two years post-blast, we feel like the project is moving in a different direction. So their writing is not necessarily about the blast itself. Um, it's about other themes, such as dealing with the city today, moving in the city, walking about the city. We've also evolved. We are in the last segment of our conversation and we wanted to give you all the opportunity to share with us any final thoughts or something you would like our listeners and anyone who visits your website to apply as they learn about your project. Thank you. I want to backtrack into the importance of sharing this, not just beyond the right to remember August 4 experience, but maybe on a worldwide scale as well, simply because like writing about this big collective experience about this shared trauma helps give a voice for those who were maybe left speechless by the blast. Uh, a lot of people couldn't write after the blast. They weren't able to handle all these overwhelming emotions mm -hmm. that come over you when you want to write. So, and I've heard this, I've heard like people say to others or, to like about a specific writing that it resonated with them and that they relate to it. And in some way, it's like they took the words out of their mouth and it really helps in this collective cathartic experience. And I think on a bigger scale about the workshops, we've had poems about words in different countries or about different big traumas, but like you still relate to it. So I think that maybe someone would not be able to express themselves and then reading one of the writings like would be cathartic thing. Yeah, I'm just humbled by the overall experience. The multiple layers, I feel like I've delved into working through my own immediate trauma because that has not been easy, but also I've gained access into the experiences of 30 brilliant participants and I've also lived through their trauma. I feel very blessed to have had access to this 
collective window, which has also enabled me to sort through my own feelings. So what this project, I think, has taught us is that although we were struggling, we found room to create an opportunity. And this has also given us meaning over the past year. Despite the difficult circumstances that the country has been going through, it was very important for us to look beyond ourselves and try to also contribute in some way, because this has been something that also touched us on that level as well. Thank you so much for sharing those thoughts. Listeners, if you want to learn more about the project, the website is right to remember org that's a u g 4.com. So I'll say it one more time, right to remember og4.com. Weija and Anna, I am taking away so much from this conversation personally, professionally. What about you? I feel like I can relate to this project on a personal level because I've been using writing as a way to process and reflect what's going on in my own personal life. I also recommend people who are dealing with personal struggles, write whatever you have in your mind and see your thoughts in front of you. In addition, this conversation also reminded me of an an earlier episode with Bob Yagowski and his idea writing as a way of being. Yeah, this really did remind me of Bob Yagelsky's episode of writing as a way of being. If any of you are interested, that's the title of his book. Um, in some ways, I feel speechless. <laughs> and in some ways, I have so much to say. It's that paradox again. I feel really moved by everything. I feel moved to be here and to be a part of it. As I said earlier, I'm Lebanese and felt really extremely helpless. And I feel grateful that we have this platform, Esther and Weja, and that we were able to help you all here have your voices be heard and to have the participants' voices heard. And there have been many moments in this conversation where I was holding back tears, really just in awe of you all for your strength and for doing this project. The situation in Lebanon is, let's not sugarcoat it in any way for our listeners. Lebanon is in dire, dire, dire straits economically and politically. I just want to invite our listeners and our readers to really, first of all, please notice that. Really think about what you've learned here and ways that you can maybe carry this kind of movement forward in your own context, but also ways in which you can support this project. I invite you to reach out to this community who we've just interviewed. If there's an idea that you have, any way in which you want to showcase this project, I hope that's okay that I'm offering that here. But I'm sure there's a million more things to say, uh, but we're running out of time. So I'll just end by thanking you profoundly for your work and for taking the time to be here. And we would love to follow this project to really showcase the work that you're doing in the ways in which this project extends. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to the episode. Two songs that you heard in this episode were created by a collaboration between Right to Remember August 4th Project and the American band Hot Buttered Rum. For more information about this episode, please check out our show notes. We'll also place links 
to the website where you can go and learn more about this project. That's it for today's episode. Thanks to our guest for the insightful discussion. We would also like to thank our listeners and blog subscribers for supporting us. And a special thanks to Emmanuel Mubiru, who provided our theme song. For notes and resources mentioned today, visit the Connecting Writing Centers Across Borders blog at wlnjournal.org forward slash blog. 